Everyone loves a good story. Everyone loves a good story. I love westerns. I love action movies. I like to read a good fiction story that has a great storyline that will surprise you in the end. Don't you like movies and books that engross you and place you in rapture and surprise you at times? And, and when the plot ends and, or when the plot twists and, and you think, well, I didn't see that coming, don't you enjoy that? We all are creating a story. It's called the story of our lives. But we share stories, don't we? Like over the holidays, over Thanksgiving, Christmas, we, maybe you share some favorite stories or family antics and sometimes they get embellished even more and more. Do you, you, do you play the game like, do you remember when maybe one of your siblings or cousins or nephews or aunts or uncles did something crazy out of the blue and you laugh and you think about that moment? But really, we're living moments right now in current real time, and we never think about them because nobody thinks in terms of story in the present. That what we're doing right now, what that current focus or event of our lives or distraction of our life is part of our story. In the future, we will talk about these days and what we went through or what occurred. And if you're joining us for the first time, kind of the, the, the theme of the series is that we write our story, our lives, one decision at a time, and whether it's thought, it's a thoughtful response or an emotionally fueled reaction, we are writing the story of our life, decision by decision. And again, if you're joining us online and you're having your first cup of coffee or your second or your third or eating your biscuits and gravy or still in your pajamas, we're glad you're joining us as well as you all that are in person today. But we've said over and over that there is often an overlooked relationship between good questions and good decisions. And so this, the whole point of this series is to give you a few good questions to add to your decision-making grid so that when you make decisions of magnitude, when the stakes are high, that you will have something to reflect on so that you can make a wiser decision and have a better life. And our key theme verse is Proverbs chapter 27, verse 12. And will you read it with me together? It says, The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. Let's do that again. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. The prudent, the sensible, the crafty, the shrewd, the wise see danger. Maybe your boyfriend, girlfriend, friend, spouse, you have watched 
someone taking a bad course of action, making some poor decisions, and you've nudged them before and say, don't they realize? Haven't they considered? What are you going to do about this? And maybe your spouse, boyfriend, or friend looks at you and says, I'm not doing anything. I'm not even going to go there. And others of you jump in and you get whiplash because they don't like to be questioned that they're dead set on what they're doing. We've all been there, haven't we? And maybe we've done it to ourselves because there's a little sales associate that lives in, in, in our head, in your head, and in his or her voice sounds a lot like your voice. And when you're busy selling yourself on this decision or this direction, and you're selling yourself too hard, you've got to stop and pause and say, is this really what I want to do? Last week we reviewed the honesty question. I want to remind you of that. And hopefully you guys are living more truthful to yourself this last week. Maybe you've, you've used this question. Am I being honest with myself? Say that with me. Am I being honest with myself? And you may say to yourself, well, Chris, or say to me, I don't really like that question because I don't want to be honest with myself. Because if I'm honest with myself, then I have to change. I have to do something differently. Exactly. And remember, I didn't ask you to do anything differently. I just asked you to ask the question. Because we are the easiest people to deceive. Because the heart is deceitful, isn't it? That's what we learned out of Jeremiah last week. Now, this week... We've got a new question for you. This is question number two in, five, in, a, in a group of five questions. So we're going to spend three more weeks after this. But this I call the legacy question. And the legacy question is this. What story do I want to tell? What story do I want to tell? We all like stories, but when we make decisions, we are making decisions and we're writing the story of our life. So do I want to be... A hero? Or do I want to be a villain in the story of my life? Because your decisions are going to determine your outcome and the consequences or the benefits of your decisions. And remember that every decision you make becomes a permanent part of your, part of the story of your life. So it's real important what decisions you make because they're going to be permanent. Now, I just want to encourage you if you're saying, well, I've really messed up. I've got some decisions I'm not proud of. Now, listen, God, when we confess our sin, when we fail and confess our failures to God, he is faithful to forgive our failures. We can close that chapter and start today and write a new story and say, I had a bad chapter in my life, but that didn't stop me. I persevered. I was resilient. God forgave me. I moved on. And I changed. Now, we've all been there, haven't we? See, when you're making a decision of any magnitude, you've got to pause and look ahead and ask, what story do I want to tell when this is only a story I tell? When this is only a story I tell, because... As we write our story in the immediate, in the here and now, we don't think about 
our story and how it impact us. We only think about our options. We think about the immediate and not the long term. Now, I got this printed basically so I can say it. When, when, you're, when we focus our attention on the immediate rather than the ultimate, and consequently we are left thinking in terms of options and not our story, the challenge is there are no emotionally neutral decision-making environments. When it comes to big decisions, it is almost impossible to be objective because of the way we feel, because of our emotions. Let's think about it this way. Let's say you're working and you have this boss and you're in sales and the boss tells you to lie to this client. And so you lie to this client and the client finds out and he tells your boss and your boss says, I don't know anything about that. And you get fired. Not a good story to tell. And let's, let's look at a different alternative to that story. You got this boss and he tells you to lie to this client and you say, no, I'm not going to lie to the, to the client. So the boss fires you for not lying to the client. Still not a great story, but a better story, right? Or let's say that you're dating someone, you're single and you're dating someone and you know that this is not the end all be all, but this is someone that that you could be with and so you get involved and you know it's not going to work you know it's not going to last and and there's nothing on the horizon and all of a sudden a few years later the whole relationship evaporates and you say to yourself well that's not a story that's not a chapter that I want to tell anybody about because remember every decision we make adds to the story of our lives Psychologists explain why once our emotions are engaged in the decision-making process, we, to some degree, kind of lose our minds, don't we? I never intended to do, but I felt. I did this. I got involved. It made it so much harder emotionally. It's a challenge, isn't it, to deal with our emotions. When we're emotionally involved, we don't see things clearly. Here's, here's a cognitive bias that, that psychologists talk about, and it's called focalism. And the cognitive bias is, is a way of looking at things when we get so overwhelmed with information in our lives. Have you ever been bombarded by so much information and it's hard to make a decision? And what cognitive bias does, it simplifies decision-making process, but it also is very, very dangerous. So we got the idea of focalism, and, and, and we've all had this cognitive bias in our lives because the victims hyper-focus on the one thing to the neglect of everything else. So what that means is, and and have you ever, let me ask you this, have you ever fallen in love? Give me a nod if you fall in love. Balcony, let me see. uh, Have you ever fallen in love? Okay. You remember that middle school uh, love interest that you had, that you were totally infatuated? This was the person, you were in love with them, you were going to marry them in middle school, and and you were hyper-focused and you could spend all that time. You sent the note, do you love me, yes or no? And you had the heart throb and you felt, felt it all over the body and the hormones were raging and the whole nine yards. And it didn't work out. 
Well, that is focalism. When we get emotionally charged in a situation, we get focused and then we think about options, but we don't think in terms of our story. And what story do I want to tell when this story is over? The situation is over. And so when you're involved in a strong emotional appeal situation, that should trigger a red flag and not necessarily a green light. In fact, the more emotionally involved, the more you need to step back and pause and think about what decision you're going to make. So I've talked a long time, and I haven't had a scripture other than Proverbs 27.12, and some of you are wondering, when are you going to preach, Chris? When are you going to get to the Bible? Here we go. We're going to look at one story that you guys know really well, and you probably could tell this story to me yourselves. It's the Joseph story, and, and, and it's going to be in the grid, within the grid, or the confines of the legacy question. What story am I going to tell? And Joseph's story is a long story in the book of Genesis. is chapters 37 through 47 of the book of Genesis, and I want to tell you a lot of it, but I want to condense it really, really well, as well as I can. Let me just say that. And so about 1800 B.C., Joseph lives. He's the 11th son of what would be 12 sons, so there were 10 older brothers that Joseph had and some sisters that we assume existed but weren't listed in, 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 the, birth, in the birthings. But in that family, Joseph was the favorite because he was the son of Jacob's favorite wife. Now, when I say this, ladies, I think that all of you that are married probably grimace a little bit when I say that, 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 that she was, Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife. She was one of four. Now, this is just a bad equation from the very get-go. And so there's a lot of jealousy and a lot of strife in that family uh, system. And so it just gets worse from there. So Joseph ends up being the favorite son. His ten other brothers were jealous of him. They design a plot to kill him. And instead of killing him, they throw him in a pit. And they're thinking about it. They're pausing with their emotions and their jealousy. And the Ishmaelite caravan drives by or goes by. And so they sell him, which is a lot more profitable than it was... uh, killing him, and so they did. And so then they had to go back to their dad and explain what happened to Joseph, and what did they do? They lied and said Joseph was killed by wild animals. Now stop for a moment. When you're making a decision as you're writing the story of your life, never ever choose the option to make you a liar for life. That's what the brothers did. So every Thanksgiving, every well, they don't have Christmas, they didn't have Thanksgiving, every holiday they celebrated, every time Joseph's name was mentioned, oh yeah, Dad, that's too bad, Joseph died, wild animals, remember, just don't bring Joseph's name up. But they had to deal with the lie. And, and they were liars for life. And realize this, That whatever you gain in the moment, in the lie, will not be worth what you're forced to carry into the moments that follow. They lied and lied and lied. It would be years 
until the lie was discovered. Now here Joseph had been sold off to the Ishmaelites, and then he's sold off to this military or military leader in Egypt called Potiphar. And, and you've got to recognize that now Joseph was a slave in Potiphar's house, and how was he going to react? And it wasn't his fault. Somebody had took control of his story, like parts of your story are hijacked, commandeered by evil people, selfish people. So he could have said, so why try? Why, why should I care? What should I do? Should I have the attitude of a normal slave, just do whatever it takes to get by? Or should I try to thrive in this situation and do what God calls me to do to do my very best? And so you know, Joseph did his very best. And he excelled in the household, in Potiphar's household. And everything was under his control. Potiphar did not concern himself with Anything except the food that he ate. That was how good a manager Joseph was. And so things were going pretty well. Joseph was living his best life under the conditions that he was a slave. God had favored him. He had good fortune. He did not give up. He did not give in to the pressures of what being a normal slave would be. But there was a problem. Joseph was a handsome guy. That's not a problem in and of itself. But Potiphar's wife was attracted to Joseph, and and Potiphar's wife wanted Joseph to be his lover. And what complicates this was that this was not a good choice for Joseph because it wasn't a question of morality so much as it was a question of who he was going to be sleeping with and the choice being it being found out, and it was a choice of either death or death in that moment. It wasn't as large a moral choice as it was that it was a lose-lose choice, and also Joseph had to think about what story he was going to write. Was he going to have an affair with his boss's wife? And what kind of story would that be? And so one day, she had him trapped in the house. And what he does is he does this. He says, he, he tells her the story. Listen, I was a slave. I was bought by your husband. I've worked really, really hard. I've done my best. I've served you and him all these years. And, and by the way, by the way, I said, this, this is... This is a sin against God and ourselves, and, and it will be found out. And what story do you want to write? That's a paraphrase. In, in Genesis 39, 8, 9, it may not be correct in your, in your bulletin, but in Genesis 39, 8, 9, this is what Joseph said. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, My master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. This is the best life for Joseph. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 
Joseph's saying, hey, this is not a story that you want to write. This is not a story I want to write. And so he refuses her, and so she claims to Potiphar that Joseph raped her, and, and he uses, she uses his cloak as proof. And so what happens? Joseph is cast into prison. And again, Joseph has a choice. But Joseph's story wasn't over. And, and you've got to realize, even though he was cast into prison again, he had a choice. And we have a choice because our stories aren't over either. So what happens in prison? He decides to do his best, to work hard. And in fact, he becomes the second to the warden of the prison. It's kind of like a rewrite of the whole Potiphar's household, but it's a prison story. Now, my, my, my response is I never want to be the warden's best man. I don't want to be in that position, and neither do you. That is not a goal or career choice I want to make. That wasn't Joseph's choice, but he, he, he did his best to do his best wherever he was. Now, here's, here's what happened. Joseph's responses in the difficult chapters of his life made all the difference in his life. And our responses in the difficult chapters of our lives make all the difference in our lives. There are going to be difficult chapters, but what are we going to do? What story are we going to tell? You see, Joseph throughout his life refused to react and avoided becoming like the people he didn't like throughout his whole life. And now this is, this connects to when Joseph then becomes, well, he interprets some dreams in prisons, and the prison in prison. He interprets a dream, two dreams in prison, the baker and the cupbearer's dreams. And so that he's forgotten in prison and the Pharaoh has a dream. And Joseph is called in to interpret the dream. And there are seven fat cows and seven lean cows, and the seven lean cows eat the seven fat cows. And it's talking about the seven years of plenty that Egypt would have, and there would be seven years of famine that, that Egypt would have, but the whole world at that time would have. And there was nobody to, to interpret the dream. There was nobody there. And so... Pharaoh's cupbearer remembers that Joseph is in prison and interprets the dream, so they take him out of prison, set him before Pharaoh's court, and Joseph interprets the dream. But not only that, Joseph gives Pharaoh unsolicited advice. So here's this 30-year-old Joseph who is in prison, or just out of prison, in Pharaoh's court, and he gives Pharaoh unsolicited advice, and it was... Hey, if I were you, I would get somebody to focus every day. Every day they get up, they are focused on this famine that is going to come. The famine is going to be so great that they're going to forget the seven years of plenty, and famine is going to be worldwide. It's going to be devastating. You need to get a wise person to take care of this every day. And so the whole court is listening to Joseph tell this tell Pharaoh what to do, and they're thinking, he's not going to be alive after he makes a suggestion, because number one, you know, 
he's he's a Hebrew and he's not an Egyptian and he's fresh out of prison and he's talking to the God of Egypt, which is Pharaoh. And and plus, he's a Hebrew who worships another God. This is not going to go well. Joseph's dead. But instead, Pharaoh is curious rather than furious. And he says, hey, why don't you do that job. You were the only one. Your God was the only one that gave you the wisdom to interpret this dream. Why don't you become second to me in all of Egypt? And so Joseph does that. And as the famine comes on, and you have the seven years of plenty, and then they have the seven years of famine, Joseph's brothers show up in Egypt. And this is where this plays in. That Joseph immediately recognizes his brothers. And his brothers don't recognize him. And through a series of events, Joseph reveals who he is. And his brothers are expecting him to kill him because that's what they would do in that situation. But instead, Joseph throughout his life refused to react and avoided becoming like the people he didn't like. He chose to respond in forgiveness and say, God had a plan, and this is what God has done. Because Joseph chose to write a better story. So when you're faced with a decision of any magnitude, ask, when this is nothing more than a story, I tell, what story do I want to tell? What story do you want to tell? Will you decide on a story that you would be proud to tell? Now, I've got three questions like I have had every week so far in this sermon series. The three questions are simply these. First of all, can you identify a decision in the past that served as a beginning of a new and better chapter in the story of your life? Can you identify a decision? Maybe it is was to be baptized into Christ. Maybe it was to start going to church. Maybe it was to join a life group or get involved in a Bible study or a women's ministry event. Maybe that was your turning point. Second question is this. What was the catalyst for the decision that sent you in a good direction or in a bad direction? What was the catalyst? For a lot of people coming to church... There's a situation in their lives and they're saying, hey, I've got to do something differently. I need to see what God has to say about this. I need to get right with God. I need to get my marriage right. I need to get my relationships right. I need, need this in my life. And number three, do you know anyone whose story, through no fault of their own, set them up to write a story characterized by bitterness and resentment, but somehow they decided to move their story in a healthy direction. We know people that should be bitter and angry. They've been abused. They've been neglected. They've had a hard way. They've been vulnerable, and people have taken advantage of them. But they've chosen to be better rather than to be better. Know anybody like that? That's people I want to be around, don't you? Now, in closing, I just want to challenge you to ask yourself, what story do I want to write? Especially when I look back and it's only a story. Will you please stand as I pray? Eternal God and Father, we're grateful for this time and we're thankful 
for the work that you do in our lives. And Father, we will all want to be heroes and not villains in our stories. And we want, Father, to bless you and to be a blessing to others because our families, our spouses, our children, our grandchildren are counting on us, Father, to write a good story. And help us, Lord, through your Holy Spirit to write a story that you would be proud of. And Father, we just ask for those that need to make a decision for Christ that they would. Father, for those that that are struggling, that they would be encouraged and helped. And Father, for those that need to close that chapter and start a new chapter, a new story, we pray that they would have the courage to do that. And Father, we pray this all in Jesus' name.